0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the Photography Podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full time jobs, full time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of Your Own. It's episode 18. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 21. All right, it's episode 22. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode Episode thirty. It's episode thirty-four. It's episode forty-seven. It's episode fifty-nine. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures Podcast, everybody. It's episode
1: eighteen. So tonight, on our podcast, we have a guest with us an tonight, awesome guest. an awesome guest. His name is Royce Bear. One yeah.
0: of my favorite parts of your ebook was the part where you had the histogram explaining how. You can underexpose your Milky Way very easily if you don't have that separation between the stars and the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of jamming too far to the left in a lot of my shots. And then when I f- started focusing on what you're saying, I realized bring my ISO up a little bit more so that you can get that separation. And I oh. noticed a huge difference in the quality of my stars and my sharpness. Yeah, it's like called it.
2: exposed to the right,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, it's an old term. And what you do is you expose more so that you get that better shadow detail uh, as long as you don't blow out your highlights. But right. there's this little dance that we have <laughs> right. that the more that we give it the proper exposure, as much as we can, we have to jack the ISO. Right. Uh, so the <laughs> yep. question often comes with people, well, if I expose this so that my highlights, the, the the part of the milky way that's a central bulge just hits the center of the histogram goes halfway if i do that then i've got to raise my iso clear up to 6400 mm-hmm. and wouldn't it wouldn't be better for me to knock that down to 3200 or even 2000 so that uh, i don't have that much noise well tests have shown that if you do that, if you underexpose it and then have to bring it up later, you actually get more noise you than more if noise. you'd shot at the higher ISO oh, wow. in the beginning. That's what Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's what I've been
1: noticing last year as as we started doing more and more astro shots. Uh, it was kind of a
2: semi-cloudy night, so you, there were some low clouds. So there was a lot of light pollution yeah. there mm-hmm. above, above Wendover. Then when I finished with that, then I turned to the... Uh, northeastern sky to, to shoot the Orion's Belt and Beetlejuice and yeah. all those fun things. When I, mm. I want a
0: double fog filter so I can capture the color really nice. Cause they oh, get that, that is out. so
2: neat. Yeah, I shot that with a double fog filter. Uh, a double fog filter uh, simulates uh, a haze or thin clouds atmosphere, mm-hmm, right. which mm-hmm. causes the um, stars to glow. And flare right. a little bit. And what I'll do is, uh, by the way, you can't use that filter on a 14 to 24 millimeter or 15 to 30 because they don't make one right. that big. Right. So uh, you, you're right. stuck with the 24 millimeter, <laughs> you know, mm. like a Rokinon 24 millimeter or or uh, on a Canon, you've got a 16 to 35 yeah, that you yeah. could use it on. Yeah, but do
0: about coma in that situation. Mm-hmm. And it's
2: beautiful what it does, but many people think that it causes a little too much fog. So I'll shoot two exposures. Oh. I'll shoot one with the filter on and one oh. without. And then I'll blend them in Photoshop mm. layers. And yeah, and yeah, yeah, we'll then them I'll just fun. change the opacity until I get the the glow the way I like yeah, it. so that's it looks a good natural. Tip. Yeah, nice. Yeah,
0: Beetlejuice is really bright and yellow, and then Rigel is really bluish white. And so those two contrasting are so cool. Oh, it mm. is so
2: neat. And you, a lot of people don't realize how the stars are different color.
0: Mm-hmm. And they uh, think white only. Yeah, they think they, right.
2: they, they think they're only white only or light blue, or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And each mm-hmm. one has a different Kelvin temperature. And the, um, that filter, the double fog filter, double fog three, I think it's called. That's the one mm-hmm. I'm looking for is a
0: Tiffin double fog three filter. Yeah. yeah.
2: It, uh, when it gl- causes the stars to glow, it glows that color. Reds that, and y- yellows and Reds blues and, and yellows mm-hmm. and oranges and yellows. <laughs> I mean, like, what is it, Antares? that's on the the uh, Antares. yeah it's, it's a really bright orange one bright, or- right? bright orange mm-hmm. oh it just makes that stand out
0: and so let's take our first break and when we come back let's get into some of these questions from the listeners tell some stories and then let's talk astrophotography alright
2: Hey, we hope you go to the Nightscaper Conference 2020. That's at nightscaper.com. And if you use Adventure 100 at checkout, you're going to get $100 off on the conference yes. registration.
0: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up for Photog Adventures. If you guys want to come through with Photog Adventures, get that $100 discount as well. Come join us. Go to nightscaper.com and sign up today.
1: So the first one from the listeners group comes from Brent Huntley. He asks uh, any tips when you only have a slower lens um, at F. 3.5 for example
2: well that is a wonderful question a lot of people have said to me well i only have a kit lens that's uh, 3.5 right. mm-hmm. well, the biggest problem with kit lenses is not the 3.5 but the the focus the focus on those <laughs> oh, things yeah.
1: are terrible right
2: you know it's hard to manual focus some of those kit lenses. They don't even not have some of them don't even have a focus ring have you ever noticed that
1: I Mm. didn't notice that. Yeah. I wonder.
2: It's all internal Mm. autofocus. But uh, most of the kit lenses you can manual focus. But most of these kit lenses are 3.5. And you shoot wide open, you're going to have quite a bit of coma Mm -hmm. on on many of these. Coma usually only shows up, though, near the edges and in the corners. If you use the center portion of the lens, you get pretty good results. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let's start start out, though, about the uh, fact that we're losing half a stop. Right. right? 3.5 instead of 2.8. If you lose a half a stop, that isn't the end of the world. The histogram isn't going to be as good. But you can, and usually some of your cheaper cameras, the ISO doesn't look as good right. between 3200 and 6400. So your only other option is to try to correct it a little bit in post. Remember, you're starting with an underexposed image. You haven't brought your highlights up to the middle of the histogram, yeah. to the right. Your only other option now is to go a longer exposure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what happens when you do a longer exposure? You start getting star trailing or right. blurring. But if your image is only going to go to an 8 by 10 print or a 11 by 14 print, the uh, the trailing is not too bad. So my suggestion is to go a full 30 seconds. Usually your best images are going to come out between mm. 20 and 25 seconds rather than the whole 30 seconds. But in this case, you'll want to go 30 seconds, maybe even 45 seconds, oh, okay? okay? <laughs> and that's going to cause some blurring of the stars, some tra- trailing of the stars, but that's better than the alternative, which right. is an underexposed exposed a really image. really noisy uh, garbage yeah. image. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. The second thing that you can do is to shoot multiple images. Do, do a panorama and stitch them together. In other words, mm-hmm. put your camera, if, if you've got a horizontal image, uh, for instance, yeah. put that camera in a vertical position and do at least three or four shots taking up the same area, overlapping by 50%.
0: Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And then
2: stitch that image together. And you will have super high resolution. Mm. And you remember you can go the the longer exposure and the tracking doesn't look as bad when you've got these multiple, multiple images and blending them together. Huh. Yeah. So the resolution is is really good. And because you're stitching the center of the image, remember you're overlapping by about 50% yeah. or more, the stitching software is using just the center portion of each image.
0: The best portion wow. the without best the portion. ball off okay. and without the coma.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 21.
1: Today we have a guest, her name is Briny
3: Richards. What I'm looking for is the detail, the real colors of the nebula that you can Mm. get within the Milky Way. Yes. So things like um, Cat's Paw Nebula, which is pretty much only visible in the summer, just above the horizon. And it literally looks like a cat's paw, with the pad and three sort of toes.
0: How far away is it from the core? Are we talking it's ever near the core? Or it's it's usually on the horizon only, you're saying? Yeah,
3: so it's in the summer where you get the core sort of going up vertically.
0: Okay. Um,
3: It'll be on the horizon normally. Oh. And it's pink. And it's pink because of ionizing hydrogen. Oh, I think that's I've seen that have.
0: in some of my pictures.
3: Yep. And you may have seen Lagoon Nebula, which oh. also kind of looks like... That's sort of more in the center of the core is Lagoon. Yeah. And Lagoon is like... As far as I know, it's ionizing hydrogen, but it's also sort of got a bluish tint, which is young stars. Mm. Oh, cool. So I think few people realize why the colors of the Milky Way are, are why they are. Mm. So you get the yellow for the old stars. So a lot of the core being sort of this deep yellow is because the stars are dying. The stars kind in of sad. the
0: center are older and dying. Yep.
3: And then blue stars, are the young stars, and pink is the ionizing hydrogen clouds. Oh, so that's, that's why a lot of the nebula are sort of this pinky hues surrounding them. A girl. nursery
0: for new stars. Yep. When I'm dodging and burning my Milky Way, <laughs> I see a little red in the center or towards the core. And so that's probably what I'm seeing is lagoon. Yeah, it's mm. within
3: a big dust channel. So okay. any of the sort of the negative space of the Milky Way is something called a dust channel. Yeah. And that's sort of the darker areas. Scientists aren't very sure what those are still. <laughs> they're kind of this sort of mystery thing in space as far as I know.
0: They know it's blocking light or they know that it's that color.
3: Or it's just void, Bright. void of anything really. So it's it's kind of interesting. And those dust lanes you can get immense clarity. I've got one sort of panorama from the Channel Island and I'd heard that they'd spent four months editing the photos that they are taken, these astrophotos. Four oh, that's months. Nuts. And I was like, no, that's wrong. (laughs) That's not a photo anymore. It's beautiful art, but it's not a photo. To me, a photo is something that you don't need to edit that much.
0: Just bring out what your eyes saw and fix the raw file. So Mm -hmm. there's
3: sort of a, someone estimated that to get your digital photo back to a film photo, it takes seven digital filters. So that's kind of what I work on.
0: What do you mean by seven digital filters? So
3: seven sort of layers of whatever you're changing in Lightroom. So contrast or exposure or chromatic aberration corrections, that kind of thing. So So
0: seven steps or sliders that you have modified in Lightroom and you've gotten it back to film.
3: Yeah, essentially, yeah. And that's always the goal, I think. Film was so much more, it, it represented what you could see much more. And that's, I think, with astrophotography, you sort of, when you go out and take an astro photo, spend 20 minutes not doing anything, let your eyes really adjust, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then only use red lights, red light headlamp, whatever you're using. Um, and then you really get a sense for what you're going to take a photo of. I think right. people sort of blindly go into it and just take a photo. And it's really magical. I mean, all of a sudden you see something on the screen that you can't necessarily see. Right. Yeah. But you can sometimes if you just sit there and it wait.
0: It is magical. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Alright, it's episode 22. Today, we are t- meeting with, here shortly, with an awesome astrophotographer, Ian Norman. My
4: first thing is, is to just go out and try it, especially if it's, you know, your first time, you're just starting to see these photographs of the Milky Way online, and you're, you're, you're like, I want to try that out, um, but I'm really afraid that my DSLR, you know, my, like, old DSLR from five years ago is, is not going to be good enough. The answer right. is it's absolutely going to be good enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> and the first step is is to really just go out there and try it. You know, as, as far as what you can do in in post-processing or uh or with your techniques of shooting, yes, ETTR is uh a great first method to try using um which is basically, you know, overexpose your image. Um expose it right up at, until the point where you're not completely blowing out everything to white. What that's doing is it's allowing the camera to gather more light. The more light that we gather, the more data that we have, and the more data that we have, the higher the quality of the photo, photograph, or the more that we can do with it in post-processing.
0: Yeah, so on that method, when you're thinking about gathering more light, you have your choice of a longer exposure, or maybe even turning the ISO up. Do you recommend one over the other, or does it really not matter?
4: Well, it actually does matter. Oh. Um, for the most part, most of those things tend to help, but there are... There's sort of different weights that you can give them. So the first and, and most important one is your aperture. The lower the F number that your lens can go to, the better. And w- one stop of a lens is going to give you more improvement in signal-to-noise ratio than one stop in shutter speed or one stop in ISO. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. And the reason being is, is because your aperture, the, the F number of your lens, lower the lower it is, the more light that lens is, is gathering, right? It, the, the more surface area that the lens is using to, to collect that light. And that's basically just pure light.
0: Right? Yeah. Uh-huh.
4: That's the only sort of factor that it's, it's adding to the equation of signal and noise ratio. It's, it's pure signal from the aperture. So uh, when it comes to shutter speed, it is pure signal uh, in terms of light. But the longer that a digital sensor stays on, stays collecting light, the more digital noise you'll have over time so
0: you'll get more noise from a shutter being open longer than maybe an iso being higher uh
4: okay so iso is is sort of the third one that one's a a a little bit different than both uh aperture and shutter speed and it it is very dependent on the camera i saw that you guys are using a canon 70d in some of your videos i was yeah at one point so canon sensors have for the most part and and there's some exceptions now especially with their newer technology Uh, but, but most Canon sensors in like the old, the T5i, um, most of the older rebels tend to amplify the sensor differently than say a Nikon or a Sony or a Fujifilm or an Olympus camera. Really? And they tend to do better in dark scenarios when you use a relatively high ISO. So they actually have a benefit, uh, when you increase the ISO, you know, up, To 1600 or 3200 um 6400 even um, will actually give you a benefit in noise and the reason behind that is because of the way that they amplify the signal that the sensor is collecting when they amplify it it uh, brings the signal above the noise produced by the sensor uh, or by the electronics after the sensor so they have some like uh, analog to digital converters and you know other amplifiers and stuff uh, along the way that eventually feed it into the processor and the camera. And all of those little electronics produce noise themselves. So what the Mm -hmm. Canon does is they amplify that signal before it processes it. When you amplify it higher, it tends to do a little bit better in scenarios where you have very, very little light. So Mm -hmm. Canon sensors tend to do really great at very, very high ISOs. So like I used to use my Canon EOS 6D, and I would pump it up to ISO 12800 regularly just because it, it performed excellently. At that setting. I shoot on Sony primarily now, and Sony cameras, they really don't need to be pushed up past about ISO 800
0: for the most part. Even for uh-huh. astrophotography or just in general? For astrophotography
4: specifically. So yeah, when I'm talking about huh, this, wow. I'm talking about scenarios where we have very little light. Wow,
0: so the Sony at 800 is pretty much as high as you would go on an ISO for astrophotography.
4: Right, yeah. Um, and it, it it depends a little bit on the camera and and the sensor that it's using, Um, at the end of the day, the story is that there is no right or wrong answer, and it's going to depend on your camera. Gotcha. Now, there is one sort of downside to using a high ISO, right? Like, with the Canon 6D, while I would say it tends to have its best noise performance above ISO 12800, the sort of downside of using that is that you have more have more potential of, for blowing out the highlights.
0: Mm. Oh. Yeah,
4: You know, it, it, in really uh, bright portions of the sky, like, say, the Orion Nebula, for example, which is visible this time of year, like we were saying, if you're shooting at ISO 12800 on the 6D, you're going to have more potential of blowing out that really bright nebula mm-hmm. so that it doesn't have any detail in it than if you were, say, shooting at ISO 400 or ISO 800. Right. Um, so it ends up becoming sort of like a little balancing game of where you are prioritizing quality in your image If the Orion nebula is just this like little speck in your image you know you're shooting <laughs> right. you know, maybe at at 24 millimeters and it, it's gonna be kind of like this you know distant part of your composition then maybe it's worthwhile boosting that ISO so that you've got the sort of sweet, Spot for the noise performance, at the expense of potentially blowing out a little bit of that that nebula. So it's always kind of like a balancing act between preserving dynamic range and then getting your best noise performance. Gotcha. Creating you know this this panorama stitch, and that's sort of kind of become my go-to. Method for when I really want a high quality shot is to use a 50 millimeter lens, which, uh, you know, every system has an affordable 50 millimeter lens that you can buy for it. Oh, you know, they right, tend yeah. to be about like, you know, 200 bucks at the most for the, the standard 50 prime Mm-hmm. And then doing a series of images in a panorama stitch that tends to create a, just a really, really high quality photograph.
0: And you do that even for a wide angle landscape scene with the Milky Way, or do you only do that in certain tight scenarios? Uh,
4: no. So that's the idea is that even though we're sort of restricting ourselves to this narrow field of view, right. Um, you know, which is, it's, it's, I think it's something like, uh, like 40, 40 degrees, or I think it's 40 degrees or so for a, uh, a full frame camera, and then it's even it's even uh, narrower than that for Never, an APS-C yeah, sensor. Yeah, you know that's not a large portion of the sky. You'd have to, you know, <laughs> you
0: take dozens of images just to capture it, right?
4: Yeah. So I, I usually suggest you know when you use a fifty millimeter lens is to give yourself a stitch of, of roughly four frames wide, you know, and then and then however many rows that you you prefer. I tend to do roughly eight. Exposures—the typical things that apply to to panoramas, you know, during the daytime apply as well. You know, roughly fifty percent overlap, yeah. and uh, right, yeah, doing the that stitching is going to give you, you know, a whole bunch more resolution. And the cool thing about it is that it's sort of emulating uh, what happens when you use a medium format camera. Um, oh, really? you're, you're you're essentially using a longer lens, and longer lenses are larger lenses, so they tend to collect more light. Like a 50 millimeter F2 has a 25 millimeter diameter uh, aperture. And that's that's really big. If, if you were using a 50 millimeter lens and you were doing a panorama stitch such that you had the same field of view as a 24 millimeter lens, which is roughly the, the half of the focal length, it would be like using a, a lens that has twice the aperture, uh,
0: size. And that's incredible.
4: And so, you know, the downside obviously <laughs> of using a 50 is that you can't fit the whole Milky way in the shot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what in, I worry or, about.
4: Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 sort of first recommendation tends to be, you know, for the easy peasy, you know, astro shot where you know, we're taking a long exposure and, and, uh, we want to, you know, make sure we're actually fitting the Milky way in there is we want something, you know, 24 millimeters or shorter, for our lens so we get a nice wide field of view but with the 50 you're going to get you know just a small portion of the milky way so the only real solution is to do that panorama stitch yeah. so for the you know the individual exposures you are going to have sort of this uh you're still going to have noise in the shot and you know the, the other problems that you have to deal with when you're shooting with a, a wider angle lens but by stitching them together you're sort of condensing those problems like noise into sort of a smaller portion of the image if that makes any sense you know we're, oh, we're yeah. hiding it by the fact that this image is now going to be you know 50 to <laughs> 70 <laughs> megapixels right and then, you're yeah. it's almost like you're zooming out from the noise right no oh. yeah, that's, that's exactly you're making the noise profile finer uh relative to the picture as a whole
0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 30. We have a special guest talking about astrophotography, and his name is... Eric Benedetti. For someone who's been there and done that for multiple years now and you know it, what do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of starting this part of astrophotography that you would give us?
5: I think there's a lot of general advice for this hobby that's great. Um, You know, the general advice is... If you have the money, buy full frame and and buy, you know, an expensive lens and, and all this other stuff. I would advise against that very much. I would advise buying something like a Nikon D7000 or a Canon T5i. You know, those are very reasonably priced cameras. Mm-hmm. And... I would advise against buying a lens like the Tokina 11 to 16 f2.8 or the Rokinon 14mm 2.8. You would advise against the Rokinon? Yes, Rokinan? I would. I would tell you to buy something like the Rokinon 16mm f2.0 or the Rokinon 24mm f1.4. Those lenses aren't so expensive, but quality-wise they are a lot better. Um, larger more,
0: apertures. It sounds like l- what you're going for.
5: At least one full stop with the f2. Mm-hmm. Two full stops with the 24 millimeter f1.4. You're thinking rule of 500. You know my exposure can only be 20 seconds with the 24 millimeter or you know 25. Right, right. Or, whereas I could take 35 with the 11 to 16. Forget that. The quality <laughs> of the lens allowing you one or two more full stops of aperture is more than you can get with an extra six seconds of exposure time. Uh-huh. Um, and your pictures, I guarantee you your pictures will be immensely better because the light collecting power of those lenses is so much better than the F two point eight tachinas and Rokinans and, and all that kind of stuff. Or like and the
0: F two point eight Tamaron that I use a lot for the fifteen millimeter.
5: Let me tell you, I've I've bought fifteen lenses. Uh, I've I've used
0: in the last two weeks.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I've gone through so many lenses for this hobby. Every, everything from ten millimeters up to six hundred millimeters, <laughs> and everything from f one point four to like freaking f fifteen. You know, like <laughs> I, I've I've tried so much, and I, I'm telling you, if you're just getting into this hobby, don't worry about buying. Full frame, everyone's gonna say you need full frame for you know light sensitivity. You really don't. No, you don't. Buy yourself a decent entry level D seven thousand, D seventy two hundred is the newest version of that. Canon T five I go out, buy you know a moderate lens like the twenty four millimeter one point four. People are gonna be like, Oh, that's not wide enough, you know, you're gonna have to do a lot of stitching or whatever
0: so Why what you yeah. want panoramas it takes
5: five seconds to stitch three pictures together like who cares like, <laughs> right but a 24 millimeter 1.4 is going to collect five times as much light in a single exposure as a to kind of 11 to 16 f 2.8 you know mm. and so the huge and advice and
1: the sharpness being a prime yeah. as well as holy being, cow so being, yeah valuable
5: you're at 24 millimeters, you're not going to deal with rotational distortion. You're going to have much less chromatic aberration. Mm-hmm. You're going to have zero coma. <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah, you have a
1: super that clean image. Your, awesome.
5: your picture is going to be so much better. I'm telling. That's that's what I would tell people. So if you could cool.
0: prioritize anything, prioritize an aperture size first because you want yes. to have that light collecting yes. power beyond having a wide focal
5: length. So if I could just give one more little metaphor,
0: we will take it.
5: I do stem cell research, right? So I do biological research so a lot of the things i compare technology wise end up having a correlated thing biology wise mm-hmm. okay. so what is a camera and lens that your body has eyeballs your or eyes Your mm-hmm. yeah. eyes are a camera and lens right so your eye has essentially a focal length of about nine millimeters is
0: that because i keep hearing 32 35 no. like what is it no.
5: it's, makes more sense that it's nine Your yeah. so can yeah. maximally dilate nine millimeters oh, depending so on the person it could be even less your eye has an aperture of two so f2 mm.
0: really you had a way of proving that that's an interesting yeah. yeah
5: so so the so 1. your 1. eye is, is essentially in a nine millimeter f2 point lens okay okay <laughs> compare that to a Takana f2.8 basically Trash. your eye is better than <laughs> a, a Takana 11 millimeter f2.8 and you mm. want to use that lens for astrophotography in a in a setting where there's almost zero light, you know. Mm,
0: that's a really interesting point.
5: Whereas when you look at something like the Rokinon twenty-four millimeter F one point four, or I use the Sigma Art thirty-five millimeter f one point four. Mm. You know, your clear aperture area of a twenty four millimeter one point four is twenty-four divided by one point four. Your eye is nine divided by two, so it's like substantially better with a (laughs) 24mm 1.4. Oh, wow. In the most simple terms, you know, if you're comparing a lens to your eye, why would you want something that has barely better light collecting ability than your eye where you could get something like the Rokinon 24mm 1.4, which is significantly better than your eye? Wow, I have never looked at it that way. That's awesome. Yeah, that is gold. That is amazing. In terms of, you know, when you start... Doing this for a while, there will be certain things you see in images um, across the interwebs. And you'll see that 90%, 95% of images are very, very similar Mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, little quality aspects that stand out to you. And then you'll see people who delve into using. 24, 35, 50 millimeter lenses like Paul Wilson. Do you know who Paul Wilson is? That's not a name I'm knowing, no. He takes fantastic Milky Way exposures, you know, pictures. And he uses a 50 millimeter mm. lens, mm-hmm. and if you, I mean, he takes gigapan pictures. Do you know what a gigapan is? It's like it's just a gigantic bright, panorama, huge, huge picture, a gigabyte right. of information. Just- I mean, he's one of the best in the world, and and the detail and the sharpness and the quality that you get in his images is because he's using that kind of lens. It's not because he's, you know, doing some crazy voodoo magic. <laughs> no, it's yeah. when you look at 95 percent of the pictures on the internet of nightscapes it's by people using lenses that are 10 millimeters to 15 millimeters and they're mm-hmm. using f2.8 and there's lots of coma and chromatic aberration and rotational distortion you know and those are things you'll you pick up you know when you've been doing this for a while and you're like okay if i want better pictures you want a sharper lens you want something mm-hmm. that can collect a lot of light in a short amount of time and those wide angle lenses just can't do that Oh, cool. That's awesome.
0: It's episode 34, and today we have a very special guest that we don't want to waste any time, so let's get right to it.
1: Hey, guys. So joining us today is Mark G.
0: What do you recommend for beginners just getting started? You know,
6: the best thing to do is, is to, you know, PhotoPills is a great app because you can see where the Milky Way rises um, through the Centric Planner and where it sets. And, you know, just get out there and get familiar with it. You know, that's, that's the big thing. You've, you've got to get out. You Don't get, don't get hung up of, of planning things and saying, well, you know, I've got to be here at this time and do that. Just just go to a location which you like and have a look at the compositions and, and start shooting stuff, really, and, and feel mm. what's right. I do like shooting um, panoramas, but they're, <laughs> they're a lot of work <laughs> to, yeah. to, to get right. So sometimes I get a little lazy and I thought, oh, I'll just stick to the single single shots. But <laughs> but the the good thing about panoramic images is because you just get so much resolution out of it. And I, I usually up my focal length. Like I, I'm usually shooting around 14 mil regularly, but then I go to 24 mil with the panos. And, and the oh, amount yeah. of, amount of additional detail you get out of it is, is just incredible and sometimes i don't even worry about noise reduction not at all mm, no mm-hmm. no because it, it filter's down when when the image gets scaled down it filters down and if you oh if, right right yeah, and if you're printing really big like i've printed had my images uh, printed as billboards
0: no, oh, one, no, awesome. one's gonna,
6: no one's going to stand right up to it and say, oh, my God, look at that noise right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> look at that noise. It's, you've got to stand right back, and, and you just don't see it.
0: People are going to ask, are you a stacking person? Are you a panorama only? Do you focus on a lot of work and processing? How
6: do you get your shot so clear? I do noise reduction generally. On single images, definitely do noise reduction. Um, I don't overkill it. And you know you you just lose way too much detail. I don't mind a bit of noise in the images. Um, it's it doesn't affect it too much. And as when you know if you're displaying on Facebook or the social media, it, it just gets
0: all right. filtered out anyway.
6: You don't you don't <laughs> really see it so much. Um, but uh, yeah, panoramas. As I said, I really like working with that because you got the resolution and and you can keep all that details because you don't have to do so much noise reduction. I have done stacking I sometimes I stack if I'm going to stack anything I'll be stacking the foreground more so than the sky Um, really yeah because you know you you just average out that noise between you know I shoot between 15-20 images sometimes Mm -hmm. and you you stack those and just average that all that noise in there so you can then lift up the blacks. You can you can get in there and, and get more detail out of the foreground. That's a, that's really, a good, really good uh, point. Yeah, that's yeah. a good tip. I
0: like Especially that. if I'm doing a single image and I've got something out there like the Goblin Valley area. That's a brilliant-looking bunch of goblins everywhere, and if I capture that... Mm-mm. But then I stacked seven to twenty of them, and I have something that's doing the median filter. Yep. Oh, yeah, pretty
6: brilliant looking. Yeah. yeah, it's really clean. It's, re- it's really nice, and I love I loved it when I when I run workshops. Um, I actually ran one with photo pills a few weeks ago um, here in Wellington and, awesome. and I, I, I demonstrated that and I had this foreground and they looking at it and saying oh you know it looks not so bad with noise reduction then I showed them when I stacked like the 20 images and then turned on the average and photos ch- chunked away at it and then it sort of <laughs> appeared and, and there was like these gasps in the audience like
1: <gasps> <gasps> it's clear oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it
6: was like magic
1: that's nice
0: It's episode 47. We're joined today with Joshua Snow. Let's (laughs) talk a little bit about your Milky Way photography process. I know already that you do stacking a lot. So let's talk about the process that you use stacking. What's the software that you use? The
7: software that I use on my Mac is Starry Landscape Stacker. So, Mm -hmm.
0: first question I ask you is, when you go into an approach of taking stacked images, you know you're going to go back to Starry Landscape Stacker and stack everything. Do you do anything different in your photography of the scene that you wouldn't do if you're doing a single image. So say a single image shot, you do this, and you know you're going to stack, you're going to expose this way. What are the differences, if
7: any? Yeah, so one of the the questions I always get asked about stacking is do you turn off long ISO or long exposure noise Mm -hmm. reduction in camera? And the answer is absolutely yes. And and the the reason for that is you want, The shortest amount of time between frames that you can possibly achieve, so that the the rotation of the Earth is is a much shorter span of time when you stack the images. The software the software is not going to struggle as hard to align all the stars and warp the frames, stretch the frames, and rotate the frames. Because um, if you've ever tried to, to align and stack manually in Photoshop, oh, yeah, I have. You, understand, you understand the amount of work that the software mm. is doing for you. <laughs> so anything you can do to alleviate some of that, that, uh, that movement and rotation, the better. Okay, so, so first thing is just take uh, your
0: shots quickly in quick succession. If you're taking 10 or 40, you're just going to do it quickly. Yeah,
7: when, I'm gonna, when I know I'm going to stack a sky... I will turn my ISO to some crazy number, like ISO 10,000 is usually my baseline. Um, so let me interrupt F2. you. 8. When you stack, you go extra high on your ISO. Yeah, so that I can shorten my shutter speed. Mm, okay. Ooh. Because I know that when I stack, you know, if I stack 10 frames, if I stack 13 frames, that that noise is going to be gone at ISO 10,000. And I know that just from doing it a bunch of times. And I shoot with the D810, And my baseline settings for when I stack a sky, and this is only for the sky portion, is I will raise the ISO to ISO 10,000. I will always shoot at f2.8. And I will always have a shutter speed of 10, 13, or 15 seconds, depending on the light pollution, depending on uh, how much air glow is there, how much atmospheric light from the moon is there. Um, But baseline... ISO 10,000 f 2.8 and about 15 seconds is a good number for a shutter speed okay. awesome. and I'll rattle I'll, ra- I'll rattle off my my number for stacking is about 10 um, I've stacked as few images as eight and the difference between eight frames and 10 frames is almost negligible um, but lately I've if I can get away with it I've been stacking like 13 images. Um, I know people that stack 20 images. I know people that stack 40 images. Right. Um, for me, my taste, I uh, 13, 13 is a good number for me. And um, do you
0: keep that same number for the landscape as well? Are you doing it all in one shot, or are you trying to do different stacks
7: for landscape and sky? So me, personally, I will do different settings and different numbers for my foreground. Okay, And even though in Starry Landscape Stacker when it, it will give you the option of masking out just your sky portion yeah. and then it will also stack the static portions of your image the parts of the image that are not moving mm. so yeah. so yeah. you so starry landscape stacker will do it all for you if you want to take the time to be really tedious Um, With the masking option Mm -hmm. that you have in Starry Landscape Mm -hmm. Stacker, I'm I'm a little bit more comfortable um, using my Wacom tablet in Photoshop with quick selections or luminosity masks to where I want to do the masking portion um, In more detail in Lightroom or I'm sorry in Photoshop So because I'm going to do that I'll usually ramp up the ISO and shorten my exposure for the sky But if I know that I'm going to stack the foreground I will usually say 30 seconds. So I don't have to calculate an exposure. I'll cut my ISO in half, ISO 5000, and I'll shoot for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And because I've lowered my ISO, but I'm still achieving the same overall exposure value, I'll only stack eight or nine or 10 images for the foreground. The reason that I will do this and I'll lower the ISO is because if you've ever tried to raise the shadows in an ISO 10,000 image, of course uh, course. you'll notice that the color noise and the artifacting and just the noise in general is really bad. Even when you stack it, um, you know, when you stack something that's already black, you can't really recover it even when you stack it. So Yeah,
0: so step two is, um, let me summarize it for everyone listening. The first one was take as many shots as you can. Take all of your shots, whatever shots you're taking, whatever number you're taking, quickly. And the second thing is go really high for your ISO and go low shutter so you can take as quick as shots as you can and... 13 is a good number and a good average. And then for the foreground, it's different than that because you're going to go in a lower ISO, something to keep the noise down. So, so longer are,
1: exposure, yeah.
0: Yeah, longer exposure. Yeah. That's what you're saying, right?
7: Yeah. Cool. Yep, and there's been times, there's been times where I've calculated like a 10-minute exposure. I've used photo pills. I've gone into my exposure calculation pill, and I've you know pumped in there. I want to go two stops brighter, and I'll calculate an 8 or a 10-minute exposure, awesome. and I'll just shoot a single exposure, But one of the things I found, in in particular, I didn't never notice this until I was at Lake Blanche shooting the Milky Way. I took a 10-minute exposure for the foreground, and I realized when I reviewed the image on the back of the camera that I had lost all contrast, that all the shadow detail (laughs) that I was, or all the shadows, all the shadows that I was getting in the shorter ISO 10,000 exposures was gone And I didn't like that. Mm. And then I realized I so I I did what I just said and I I uh, slowed my shutter speed down to 30 seconds and I cut my ISO down to 5000 and I took a shot and the noise was less than the ISO 10,000 image, obviously. But what I liked about it was that it had the shadows is that the the light pollution I was getting from Salt Lake was actually casting some shadows <laughs> on on the background and it was also casting some nice light on the sundial yeah. peak. And when I took a really long exposure, all of that was gone. It was just flat. There was no depth. There was no texture. Interesting. It was just flat. Huh. So I never actually ended up looking back at the 10-minute exposure in Lightroom to see if it was just something I was seeing on the back of the Aww. camera that wasn't really there. But I ended up choosing to take... 10 30 second exposures um and stacking the foreground for noise reduction and I ended up being really happy with the the blend and I ended up being really happy with the end result and it actually when I put the sky and the foreground together it actually blended um easier I think than it would have using the single exposure so that's really awesome tip yeah again more work than you know I've I found (laughs) you know going through this with people in my workshops and, and going to doing Skype lessons and stuff that some people just are like, geez, you spend this much time into that much work. In image? <laughs> it's episode
0: 59. Today we are going to have an awesome guest, Michael Shane Bloom or Shane Blum. I just went through the whole thing with you about what we should say, bloom or blum, and I said both. Hey, man, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate <laughs> it.
8: You're alone, and you hear a noise, and you're like, what is that noise? And It was <laughs> probably a deer, or it was probably some random animal that Tiny you know, doesn't care about you, but, <laughs> but you're alone, and it's and it's dark, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're like, oh, what was that? <laughs> it's stalking um, me. It wants me.
1: Yeah, some little creature minding its own business, and it's freaking you out. Yeah. <laughs> Especially
8: shooting time-lapse, because you you you'll set up the time-lapse and then just kind of hang out for five hours. So you, you know, <laughs> right. I was shooting, in 2016, I was shooting a time-lapse video of California. It was, like, this really short video that I was doing called Among the Ancients. And okay. it's a bunch of Milky Way shots, and it's all based in the eastern Sierras. And I was kind of shooting that alone. This was, like, kind of out in a random spot. Oh, okay. I parked my car, and I kind of like walked out to this um i can't remember it it was this rock formation uh kind of at the end of alabama hills Mm,
3: but it's it's
8: unmarked it's not it's not like mobius arch or any of those but it is completely unmarked um this rock formation that i wanted to shoot so i was kind of it's it's and it's pretty far down in the park like no one as far as when i was out there i mean i didn't see anyone else out there so anyways i scouted it during the day i parked my car and i walked out um and i scouted this formation that i wanted to shoot and kind of got my angles and then i walked back to my car and i think the walk was it's like half a mile it wasn't far but um so went back to the car um waited for uh you know the night basically Mm -hmm. and then I grabbed all my stuff. I grabbed my time-lapse slider. I grabbed all my gear and started walking out there. And I brought my headlamp and my cell phone. So I always have two, like, lighting devices. Right. Um, I, have something, I always have, like, a headlamp, and then I always have my cell phone. And I got out there and started setting things up. I, it took a while to get my slider set up because you know, I had this move in my head where like the camera would move closer to this rock formation as the Milky Way rose and then the moonlight would strike it. Mm -hmm. Uh Mm -hmm. And so I set that up and then I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to head back to the car. And then, um, I had my, one of my other cameras in the car and I was going to set up, I was going to do a little bit of photography, um, kind of just around the car like because there was some other rocks by the car that i wanted to take some pictures of so i walked or i started walking back in right as soon as i started walking my headlamp died and it was already pretty dim and i was like okay well i have my cell phone it's got like 50 percent battery no big deal <laughs> whatever and then i ha- and then i knew i had some battery chargers in the car so i was like okay i'll just grab those and uh it's fine
0: so you're walking back to your car at this point or back to where your camera is
8: no, I'm walking back to my car. Okay. okay. And the thing is, you have a camera light, uh, but I tape all those up so that the light doesn't spill on the foreground.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. yep me too. And it's,
8: and it's pitch black, uh, and I'm alone, and I'm like half a mile away from the car. <laughs> uh, and I know the general <sighs> direction of where my car is, but that's all I know. Oh. So, so the headlamp um, was already dim, and it died. <laughs> and and I was like, no big deal. That's fine. I have my cell phone. It's It's got a lot of battery. And then my cell phone, I looked at it, and it had like 50% battery. And then it just shuts off. Was it
0: cold? Did it just do one of those battery shutoffs where it's 50 and boom, black?
8: I don't know. It's kind of, it's sort of an old cell phone, oh, or no. sort of an, one of the older iPhones, and it wasn't no, it wasn't cold. It was pretty normal out. It was mellow. I mean, you yeah. know, a little breezy, but nothing to worry about. And <laughs> it just shut off on me. And I tried turning it back on and it just wouldn't work. I tried everything <laughs> sitting there and I'm like, How am I gonna so I can't, you know and a lot of the time I have a little mini charger with like a cord and I usually have extra batteries for a headlamp. I have all these different things that would help me out in that yeah, situation yeah, to where yeah. I would never lose light. And I just, I was like, oh no, I'm like, and I'm, I'm in the desert. So, you know, there are things around, you know, yeah. there's, there are snakes, there are, uh, <laughs> different critters cruising around and some of them are fine. Other critters you kind of don't want to be running into while it's dark alone, <laughs> um, so I'm just standing there and I'm like what am I going to do right now so I I start I kind of like I'm walking so slow I I, like because I was was walking at a very fast pace to get over to my car or to get over to the camera before and now I'm taking these little baby steps (laughs) just kind of feeling out with my shoe where I'm going and then I'm and I'm like you know I I just realized there's no way this is going to work I can't it's pitch black. I can't see anything. I can't see the car. It was, it was a very scary moment. Um, hmm, yeah. I, I'm not usually that terrified at night alone in these places. I mean, I'm, I'm usually pretty comfortable with it. And I, I have surprisingly pretty good vision at night. I'm not sure why, um, but I can usually see in the dark pretty well. But it was just not even was- a little. There was no, nothing. I couldn't see any detail in the foreground, which is not, you know, usually when you're out at night, you can still see a little bit of what's going oh, yeah. on. Yeah. I'm surprised I by
0: how much I still see.
8: I couldn't see a thing. I, oh, yeah, oh. It, it was a scary moment for me. And then um, I realized in my pocket, I have this little controller that is used to, to power my camera slider. And it has a tiny little... <laughs> uh, like blue button light thing. No way.
0: You're talking like the little LED backlight for running the, like seeing the
8: screen? It's absolutely tiny. (laughs) You'd have to put it like a foot in front of whatever you're lighting just to see even what Mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. And I I kept clicking that and I held it onto (laughs) the ground as I'm walking just to make sure there wasn't anything right in front of me. And I just kept walking. I kept waddling as slow as i could back towards my car and then i finally saw just a tiny bit of star glow like star reflection on the windshield of uh on like my side windshield and so i kept you know using this little light just to make sure i'm not running into anything and made (laughs) it back to my car and i kind of just sat in the front seat for a little bit i was like whoa like I need to be, it was like, it was a, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, I need to uh, not do that again. Yeah. <laughs> to make sure. So now every single time I've shot the Milky Way and I've been alone, I have, you know, I have my headlamp. I have my cell phone. I have a cell phone charger. I have extra batteries. It's all with me in my pocket <laughs> or in the bag that I'm bringing with me. Um, yeah. I just, that was one of those moments where I'm like, I can't believe I, did something so careless, you know, because, oh, man. um, I, I luckily I, you know, went in the right direction and I kind of knew where to go, but I mean, that could have been a really, you know, that could have been a bad situation if you I could have gone oh, yeah.
0: miles the wrong direction towards your car, too.
8: Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, you could, even if you're going in the general direction, I mean, it, it was not easy to find. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that was off. a moment. That mm-hmm. was a you know stupid moment <laughs> with me just being careless, and I, I've had many moments like that where I've I've learned through experience because I'm stubborn. So, uh, yeah, that was that was one situation I could think of where it just it really brought in the whole fear of being alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast, and we'll catch you guys up next time.
8: Thanks so much, everyone. Yeah, have a good week, guys. See you.